The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 5, and can be found on page 723 in the church Bible. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The second reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page 1002 of your church Bibles. That's Mark 1, verses 1 to 15, page 1002. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sissy and Lynn and Alex. Do please um, keep that Mark passage open uh, if you've closed this on page uh, 1002. And if you're a note taker, um, you'll see my headings on the back of the uh, notice sheet. I should just say as I start that uh, Charles and Tim are noticeable absentees. I was expecting it. They're on holiday and a well-deserved holiday at that. So we could pray for them this week to, to rest well. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, please would you speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. The phone rings. Uh, You don't recognize the number. In a fit of madness, you still pick up. And there it is. You knew it would happen. Why did you pick it up? It's that moment of telling silence as the call center machine logs you on to speak to the foreign caller and then those words, hello, is it Mr. Ash speaking? How are you today? 
You're walking down the street and there they are with their charity bibs on, their money buckets jangling and their stickers to hand out. You curse yourself as you let your glance linger just one nanosecond too long and she catches your eye. Oh, hello, do you have a moment? There are a few things we hate more than complete and utter strangers demanding things of us. It makes me feel on edge. I think it makes you feel on edge too. Come on, stop the small talk, I want to say. What do you want from me? I know that there is a hook in the bait. I know there's a catch somewhere. What do you want? And that is one of the main reasons why many people, and let me say especially men in my experience, feel on edge in church or when they come to something like the Alpha Course or or Big Questions. Uh, Yes, people are being nice to me. They've probably got an agenda. Yes, the coffee's okay, I suppose. Uh, But there's this nagging question, what do they want? And verse 15 rather confirms those suspicions, doesn't it? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Well, there it is. The hook is revealed. That is what they want. They want me to repent and believe the good news, don't they? That's the catch. Jesus wants me to do something. He's a complete and utter stranger making demands of me. He's a spiritual cold caller. It makes me feel on edge. Why does that kind of thing make us feel like that? Well, two reasons I want to suggest. The first to do with psychology. The second to do with trust. Psychology. It's commonly understood fact that the human mind is the gateway to the will. If I don't give you reasons to do something, you just won't do it. You have to go through the mind to get to the will. And the the, the cold callers and the charity workers in the street, they're, they're trying to bypass my mind. I don't know who they are. They're not giving me a reason. They're just saying, do this. That's why it never really works with me. And so we come on to trust. In the area of relationships, trust is the key currency. You cannot do anything without trust. If I cannot trust somebody's character, I cannot heed their commands. You you can't do those two things. You need to trust the character before you trust the commands. That's why I hate cold callers. They always sound so friendly, don't they? And I always think, look, I want to be polite here, but it's not going anywhere. I don't know you. I can't possibly trust you. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just not going to buy your product. I'm just not going to do it because I don't know you. I can't can't trust you. And the first thing the gospel writer Mark here wants to do today is put our minds at rest. He's saying Jesus is not a spiritual cold caller. To become a Christian is not to take a blind leap of faith in the dark with no information, obeying a stranger's command. No, as my first heading says, Christianity is quite simply changing our minds about who Jesus Christ is in the first instance. And Mark's gospel is Jesus taking the time to say hello, to introduce himself to us, allowing us to ask the who are you question before he asks something of us. And it's all there in verse 15, in fact, if you would, just have a look down at it again. Repent and believe the good news. What is Jesus commanding us to do here? Well, if I was to paraphrase 
verse 15, it would say this, repent, change your mind, change your mind about who Jesus is. Where do I get that from? Did you see that phrase, good news, or that word gospel, brackets our whole passage? Have a look down, you'll see it in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news. What is that gospel? What is that good news? It's about a person, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And so therefore, to change one's mind about the gospel is to change one's mind about a person, about Jesus Christ. He's not nagging us as a stranger. He's saying, sorry, we may not have met met before, but um, let me introduce myself to you. I'm Jesus Christ. And therefore, the first recorded words of Jesus here are not cold calling. That's exactly why Mark wrote his gospel, in fact, Scholars think that he wrote probably between A.D. 60 and A.D. 70, around the time of, I don't know whether any of you are classicists, but around the time of the Great Fire of Rome, that was A.D. 64, under Emperor Nero. And uh, it burnt for a full week and raised to the ground 10 out of the 14 areas of the city, ravaged the place. And quite quickly, with some evidence, I might say, Rumors began to spread that Nero had started it himself and fueled the fire. And so to distract from the accusations against himself, he thought, what am I going to do? I need to find a scapegoat. There are the Christians. And so he placed the blame squarely on the Christian church. And so quite literally, the church was forced underground. If you go to Rome, you can see some of their inscriptions on the walls of the catacombs. They met in the graves, the catacombs under the city. If they were caught as a Christian... It's well known, but they were crucified or forced to wear wild animal skins and sent out into the gladiatorial arena to be eaten alive by the animals, or they were burnt alive along the Appian Way. It was a very high cost to be a Christian around the AD 60, AD 70. And so Mark gets together with the Apostle Peter, who's the main eyewitness for this gospel, and he writes to a beleaguered, persecuted church. And he writes to say, let me remind you of who your Christ is. Let me remind you of how trustworthy he is. Let me put his character in front of you so that when you count the cost, every morning when you wake up and think, is it worth living for him today? I want you to read my gospel and come to the conclusion, yes. Yes, it is, because this is what Christ is like. And so I have three remaining headings, each one looking at one aspect of Christ's character from verse 1, which will help us, I pray, to trust him, to obey him this next week, whatever the cost may be for us, not in the first century Rome, but in 21st century London. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. So my first heading for his character is this, he's the real Christ, not a charlatan. He's the real Christ, not a charlatan, verses 1 to 8. Let me read verse 2 again. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, as we heard in the first reading, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came. Now move down to verse 7. And this was John the Baptist's message. After me will come one more powerful than I. And then verse 9, at that time Jesus came. 
Put yourself, if you can, in the first century sandals of a Jewish person. God has been silent for 400 years. That's a long time to remain silent, isn't it? He hasn't sent any prophets. He's sent no word from him. Never called. 400 years of silence. And a few people have rocked up saying, I'm the Messiah, but they've all been absolute duds. And so there we are in our first century Jewish sandals getting quite skeptical. We need to be convinced If someone comes saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, we need to be convinced by their credentials. We're really quite skeptical. And suddenly, verse 4, there's a flurry of activity over in the desert region. Now, when we're working out whether we can trust somebody, we need personal recommendations, don't we? If you're looking for a new flatmate, you need a personal reference. If you're looking to get a builder in to to build the extension, you need personal references. And if you're needing to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, well, can I suggest we need personal references for him? And that is exactly what God gives us in Mark chapter 1. Two big personal references for first century Jews. First, the prophet Isaiah. He promised the Messiah will have a messenger, and then the messenger arrives looking just the part, looking the real deal. That's what verse 6 is about. I wonder if you found verse 6 confusing. I found it confusing for many, many years. What on earth is that about? Why do we need to know about John the Baptist's weird fashion fetishes? But he is wearing and eating exactly what Elijah the prophet wore and ate in the Old Testament. It's a way of him saying, I'm the real deal prophet. I'm authentic. I can be trusted. And who does John point to but Jesus the Christ? Do you see Mark's point? He's laboring to say, here are a few personal references if you don't believe he's the real deal. He really is the Christ. He's not a charlatan. He's not a cowboy. I don't know about you. Don't you find it easy to live for Christ when you're in church? I do. Even as I'm leading the service, it's quite easy. But it's when I go out there that it becomes much harder. I'm outnumbered as a Christian. I feel outgunned sometimes in in, in arguments or or, or discussions with people. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I mean, the radio shows that we listen to, the billboards we see, and the papers we read, they're not vehemently anti-Christian trying to lock us up or, or do an Emperor Nero on us. But there is a a bottom-line assumption that Christian doctrine is not true. All sorts of subliminal messages coming through, which are not Christian messages, aren't there? Live for now. Uh, Be the hero. Follow your dreams. And after a while, I don't know about you, but I begin to be beguiled by it. And so then the doubts creep in. For me, anyway, speaking personally, is Jesus really the Christ? Have I just been hoodwinked? Did I ever look into the facts surrounding his death and resurrection properly? Is it just my parents' faith, unquestioned? Or is it just a projection of my desires? Is Jesus Christ the real deal? I remember vividly chatting with a very good friend of mine, who remains a good friend to this day. In fact, he may listen to this sermon online. Hello, JK. 
But we had a fascinating discussion, and he was talking about psychosis. And you know, psychosis is a state of mind where you can construct something which appears to be a reality around you, and people can live in a fiction, a fictional world. They think it's real. And he just, as a passing comment, so he knew I was a vicar, but he said, I wonder why religious belief doesn't come under the title of psychosis. It was a very interesting comment. I said to him, I wonder why atheism doesn't come under the title of psychosis. But Mark, do you see here, he's writing his gospel to say, no, it shouldn't come under the title of psychosis. Christ is the real deal. He's not a charlatan, not a projection of our imagination. So when the cost for being a Christian is high this week, we can remember who Jesus is. Repent and believe the good news. It makes sense. And second of all, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So my second heading on Christ's character is this. He's God's king, not a weakling. He's God's king, not a weakling. This is from verses 7 to 11. Verse 7, after me, says John the Baptist, will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I always love the fact that that rhymes in our translation. But bear in mind two things for this here. First, in a Jewish household where there were Jewish slaves, the Jewish slaves would have done near everything. Uh, made the beds, uh, done the cooking, sorted out the loo. But there was something which was beyond the pale for them. What they would never have done is deal with anybody else's feet, and specifically the master's feet, not even his feet. It was the lowest of tasks in first century Jewish culture. Now bear in mind the second thing here. Bear in mind that John the Baptist was the highest of all people. It's very striking, isn't it? Do you remember Jesus' words, I think in Matthew 11? I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's saying he's the highest, highest of men. And you can see that in our passage, can't you? He must have been an amazing preacher and teacher. He's out there and everyone is coming out to him in the desert regions, coming a long way, the commute. He's a celebrity of the day. And so bring those two things together and we have something quite striking. The lowest of tasks and the highest of people. And the highest of people is saying, I can't even do the lowest of tasks for the one who is to come, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the church of today, speaking personally, needs to recover something of our awe for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I can be a bit pally-pally with him. We can be intimate with him. I, I can call him my friend and my brother, for he is. But you know, if he were to walk into this room now, Ed would fall to his face first of all. And as we all saw him, we would fall to our faces on the ground. He's the king. He's not a weakling. Remember Peter's words, get away from me, for I am a sinful man after one of Jesus' miracles. That's what we would be saying. And then we have a voice in verse 11. A voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at this point, I like to think that God gets fed up with giving personal references. It's like we're bad at playing the game of charades, and we can't guess who he is, and so he just throws a brick through the window of the universe and rips the sky open and says, oh, I give up. He's my son, okay? He's the king. The son of God was one of the titles for the king in the Old Testament. He's the king. And of course, that is why the kingdom of God is near, because the king 
is near. The king is saying those very words. And I want to apply this to two groups of us this morning, the lazy and the lonely. And I am in both camps at once, I have to say, this week. Firstly, the lazy. You know, sometimes I find myself just cruising along in the Christian life, and I can find myself just just going through the motions without actually giving anything up for Christ. It's really a Christianity without the cross. There's no personal denial of self in it. And it happens so easily when we've been Christians for a while, doesn't it? And, 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 and why does that happen? And, and I think the fundamental reason why it happens is that it's a bit like my concept of Jesus Christ has been put in the washing machine at too high a temperature, and it's shrunk. My Jesus has become too small. I think of him as a weakling, therefore I'm not worried about offending him. But he's the king. He's not a weakling. I need to hold him in awe. The lazy, but also the lonely. Some of us feel the battle to live the Christian life so keenly that the pressure just feels too much for us at times. I was speaking to a very good friend from St. Michael's. He's not here this morning, but last week he was in floods of tears and he came to me and he just said, the pressure is too great. Besetting sins, left, right and center. He felt he wasn't doing justice to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He felt lonely. He said, the joy has gone. He felt lonely. Have a look at verse 8. John says, I baptize you with water. In other words, I can make you wet. That's all I can do. But King Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to say to that young man, my friend, I said, you know, King Jesus, he comes to live within us by his spirit in all his power. So what is your battle this week? Is it singleness, a battle with that contentment there? childlessness, a battle with that, thwarted dreams, having lost your job, loneliness bringing up the children, helping around the house after a long day at work. I don't know what your battle is, but, you know, Christ the King gives you his spirit to live in you, and he works in us in all his power. He's the King, not a weakling. That's a great encouragement for us as we repent and believe the good news this week. But third, and finally, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, which means rescuer, Christ, the Son of God. He's the suffering saviour, not a sadist. He's the suffering saviour, not a sadist, from verses 9 to 13. Can I ask you, if you had to pick out the biggest surprise in this passage, what would it be? If you had to underline the, the most surprising verse, what would it be? Some of you are still looking at me, but have a look at the passage. What would be the most surprising verse? I was pondering this this week as I was preparing this, and I think for me it would be verse 9. What do you think about that? At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized. I mean, he comes from Nazareth. That's what he does. That's no surprise. But then it's the next thing, isn't it? He, He gets baptized by John. What is going on there? Baptism in the first century was just used for proselytes. It was for Gentiles who were kind of attracted to monotheism, so for outsiders. And it was and, it was, and is now still quite an offensive sort of sign, I suppose. It was a sign John the Baptist used to say, you're dirty, come and be washed. You're dirty, come and be washed. Quite offensive, really. 
And here we have the only man ever to have lived, never to have sinned. The only man never, who just didn't need washing. Jesus Christ. And what is one of the first things we read about him doing? The first thing in, in Mark's gospel, being washed. What, what is going on there? He's already clean, isn't he? I, I think that's very confusing. And then verses 12 to 13, if you look up, the next thing, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. I don't know any kings, actually. I'll come clean. There's none in my phone book. But my guess is that they have a good time of it most of, most of the time. Born with silver spoons in the mouth, and they have press officers and chauffeur drivers and so on. But, but this king is so different. The next thing after his baptism that he experiences is going out into the wilderness with the wild animals and being tempted by Satan. This one chooses to enter his broken world and to forego the immunity from the brokenness he could have had. Don't you find that amazing? I want to stand where you're standing, he says. I, I want to stand with you, sinners in need of being washed. I want to stand with you. I want to stand with you, human beings being tempted by Satan. I want to stand with you. And I want to stand for you. Let me read the words of a very famous hymn as I close. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. So friends, he's the suffering saviour. He's not a sadist. And we'll find that in Mark's gospel, it's split into two. Chapters 1 to 8 are all about Christ the King, his glory, his miracles, the wow factor. And then from chapter 8 onwards, we see his suffering. And Mark is saying, do you know, the King is the one who suffers. Suffering is the way forward. He's the same person. He's the suffering saviour. Don't you think the Christians in first century Rome would have found it easy to resent Christ? You know, you imagine the Romans laughing as people, are, Christians are killed in the arena. And is Christ so different? Telling me to repent and believe from the safety of his throne in heaven? Christ the sadist? Quite easy for them to think. And yet Mark writes to say no. No, he's not a sadist. He's a suffering savior. He's been through everything you will go through and I will go through as a Christian. Abandoned by a close friend, misunderstood by family. Even if you see in the verse there, verse 13, with the wild animals, that would have resonated for first century Christians in Rome. He's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He never asks anything of us that he hasn't done already. He's the suffering servant and savior. So there we have it. The phone rings. You don't recognize the number. You pick up, hello. It's Jesus Christ here. Let me introduce myself to you. I am Christ. I'm the real deal. I'm not, I'm not, a, not a charlatan. You, you can trust me. I'm the king. I'm not, I'm not a weakling. I'll protect you. And I'm the suffering savior, so you really can follow me. So then repent and believe the good news. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, enable us to hold this mark and picture of you in front of us when the cost is greatest for us this next week. Help us to repent and believe because we know you to be trustworthy.
Amen.